Well, welcome to the National Academy and another exciting installment of the review panel. I'm Marshall Price. I'm the curator of modern and contemporary art here. And I just would like to introduce David Cohen, who is the moderator of the panel. But first, uh, we need to thank a few people. Um, the review panel is indebted to the Edith and Herbert Lehman Foundation, the Daedalus Foundation, and the New York State Council on the Arts. It's because of them that we are able to do it. David Cohen is the moderator of the review panel. He runs the gallery at the Studio School. He's an art critic for the New York Sun. And he is also the editor of artcritical.com. So that being said, David, um, take it away. Well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Marshall, and thank you to the National Academy, to uh, Annette Blaugrun, the executive director, and Susan Shatter, the president, and all the wonderful staff who make this, uh, this event possible. Uh, it's always wonderful to see some fresh faces in the crowd so that one doesn't feel that this is a private club. So please put your hand up if this is the first time you're honoring us with your presence at the review panel. Excellent. That uh, means that I have the pleasure of reminding everybody of the format of the evening, which is as follows. Uh, we're looking at five shows, which uh, most of you, I gather, have managed to see while we're doing, conducting straw polls, perhaps, perhaps you tell me if you'd seen uh, two or more of the exhibitions that we're looking at tonight. Oh. Well, that's, that's probably the same average as the uh, panel, so that's very good. But you should... <laughs> it... Can I just ask, is there some way to know before tonight what you're going to be discussing? <laughs> 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 um... Yes, there is. That's a very valid question. What you need to do is go to artcritical.com slash review panel um, or, and or put your name on the email list here this evening so that you can be sent the flyer or call the National Academy and demand to know <laughs> um, because we would love you to be able to see the shows. That's indeed a great deal of the the, the raison d'etre of this event is to, is to criticize exhibitions, but it's also hopefully to, to go and see them. Uh, so thank you for that question. And when you go to artcritical.com slash review panel, as well as learning about the future, you can have the pleasure in indulging in the past because there is a, an archive of past discussions that can be heard um, in, with live streaming on on online. <clears throat> and my able assistant uh, has very recently updated the archives, so we're just missing a couple of past ones, but virtually all of the, I think, 13 out of the 16 review panels that have happened so far, including the Brooklyn special at the Pratt Institute, are online and to be heard. 
So the format this evening is simplicity itself. I show a PowerPoint presentation of one or two shows that we're about to discuss. The PowerPoint's turned off, the lights are restored, and we have a lively little discussion up here on the panel. And we look at two or three shows like that, then we bring in the audience, because by then you'll be dying to let off some steam or probe the panel further on points that require clarification. And then we repeat the exercise, and then we go home. I will announce, I'm not able to announce what the shows are that we're looking at on May the 11th are, but I can tell you to do come back on May the 11th, where my guests are Katie Siegel and Andrea K. Scott. Great. Well, this evening my guests are from the far left, uh, your far right, uh, Charlie Finch, who's a senior critic. It's always encouraging to know that there are at least one person in the audience who's rooting for a member of the panel. (laughs) And Charlie, I was worried that you were going to be too shy to express opinions, but now you know you've got one or two friends in the audience, you'll you'll be able to let your hair down a little and um, give us some of your fire and ire. Charlie Finch is the redoubtable senior critic at Artnet magazine. Uh, He was uh, one of the founders of Coadjula, uh, and uh, in 1998, published Most Art Sucks, Five Years of Coagula. <laughs> uh, Bridget L. Goodbody is a contributing editor <laughs> at Art on Paper magazine, and we also enjoy her contributions at the New York Times, and she's involved with many other publications, was for some years a regular at Time Out, New York, for instance, and is a scholar of um, American art of the 19th century, as well as a critic of contemporary art. And Suzanne Betka. (laughs) is a freelance critic, and she's the foremost authority on earthworks. She's the author of the book Earthworks, Art and the Landscape of the 1960s, which was published in 2003 and is currently completing a book reconsidering uh, environmentalism in, and, and art. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is your panel. And your moderator, as you may have heard, is somewhat of an invalid, so please forgive eruptions and loss of voice. I'm with you in spirit. So let's look at... Our first show tonight, which is Mary Lucier's exhibition, Mary Lucier at Lennon Weinberg. Okay, great. So, panel, we've been to see Mary Lucier's exhibition at Lennon Weinberg, um, and I wonder what we make of it, Suzanne. Any thoughts? Uh, this exhibition was, uh, I, in my estimation, the strongest of the group we were uh, asked to consider. I uh, like this piece a great deal. Uh, it made me realize how important kind of layered references are in works of art because we have a show here, Plains of Sweet Regret, which has an aspect of, say, melancholy built in it. It was uh, shot in North Dakota at the instigation of a, a museum there. 
that wanted to document the, uh, the loss of population, basically, from the plains as, as agriculture becomes agribusiness. And people move move away and move and be move into cities more on the coast. You might say, um, this this work is is on the one hand. I mean, why do I like it? Okay, it's phys- it's beautiful. The, sh- the individual shots are beautiful. They are very. It's kind of a, kind of quiet, moody environment. She has also created a spatial, uh, very interesting installation because what you're sitting in are kind of antique uh, schoolhouse desk chairs that she has acquired. So you kind of feel like you're you're sitting in a nostalgic sort of seat, also. And then it has it has great kind of um, original music to go with it. Now, I will would also like to you might say introduce myself as um, a art historian, an a, a practicing art historian. I also my my activity here really is as an art critic, but you know you can't separate the parts of yourself that you are. And uh, my day job, you might say, is uh, teaching art history uh, at Bergen Community College in Paramus. So I uh, this show and all of these shows made me realize that I really look at art from a perspective very informed about art history, so that the kind of Mm, nostalgic, melancholic, uh, very attention to loss in this show is very much like Caspar David Friedrich, like early 19th century landscape painting. And so there's very much about the smallness of the individual and the largeness of the big sky and the plains and a a sense of of, uh, some kind of, you know, gray kind of moodiness to this. Let me just say one more more point. But, But as a counterpart to this sense of uh, loss, the sense of melancholy. It's very interesting when you see this, and I, I encourage you to do so. It's 18 minutes, so it's not that long. You know, I hate to, videos that make you sit you know, for a long, very long time. We all want have busy lives. But, <laughs> no, but 18, 18 minutes in this beautiful, you can stand it. All right. The end... And kind of moves away from this collage of desolate houses and big spaces and the kind of garbage uh, cast off statues that we saw here that are tarnished. And she splits the screen. She she photographs a rodeo and split the, splits the screen so you have a, a mirroring effect. Left and right are mirroring each other and repeatedly shows... Uh, a bronco buster bursting out of the corral, you might say, to ride, you know, ride the horse. And this repeated, repeated emergence and the doubling creates a kind of sensation of a birthing occur, occurring. And it, it creates the sense of like the resting forth of, a, of an infant out of the birth canal, and then the screaming uh, kind of colorful aspect to it. So there is a kind of subliminal, uh, positive, optimistic aspect to it, although it's generally very much about the loss of a lifestyle. Yeah, great. Well, uh, 
Thank you very much for that. I feel, you know, as you've declared it to be your favorite show, we should really have heard from you about it, and thank you very much for that. I, I think if we're rehearsing our credentials or lack of them, I, I should admit in discussing the work of uh, Mary Lucier that uh, uh, when it comes to video, I, I have a slightly limited threshold, and when it comes to cowboys, I have a zero tolerance. So um, I, I approach this particular work with some trepidation, but I must say I found its melancholy, its poignancy, its feltness, the consideration of its imagery, um, and, and just the existential themes that it not only approached, but also seemed really to um, uh, say something very poignant about, very moving. And I, I, I felt, um, well, I'm always happy to be converted to a new art, art medium. I might even be converted to another 30 states of the United States of America and, and go and have a, a better look at them. Um, Bridget, as, as, an, as an authority on Americana, did you, did you find that um, there were themes and issues in in uh, Lucier's work that related to uh, your own interests in, say, the Hudson River School or other 19th century American art? Well, I have to say my true love in 19th century American painting is cowboys and Indians. Uh-huh. And for my 40th birthday, or 30th birthday, I had a two-stepping you know, party and made everybody else get into my cowboy thing. And I have to say it was um, you know, very interesting and refreshing in Chelsea to see something that had George Strait music and that um, was about cowboys and was not anti-American. And um, <clears throat> that, you know, I, it, was, I, it was astonishing. It was really, really astonishing because there's so much anti-war, anti-American kind of thing. And here was actually a kind of re- a refreshing look at a certain aspect of American culture without actually judging it harshly or taking a sort of holier-than-thou kind of position. And I appreciated that. Um, in terms of the work itself, I didn't quite get the melancholy out of it. Um, I did sort of, you know, felt like it needed some editing. The, the animated Rorschach cowboy rodeo, you know, Rorschach drawing cowboy video felt like went on forever for me. Um, you know, I thought there was kind of, it was kind of um, mixed quality of video. Some of the shots were very high definition. Some of them were blurry. Some of them were moving. Some of them were still felt like that could have been a little bit more carefully put together. Um, the poetry at the end, I you know, would have loved to have known that they were written by a Native American woman um, at some point other than sort of seeing them kind of flash up on the screen. But you know, that said, it sort of, you know, she did really involve a whole community of people and a whole, lots of different points of view about this place without really kind of um, you know, overwhelmingly placing her own point of view on it. And I, you know, I thought, oh my God, I, I can't be in Chelsea right now. And then it made sense to me that it was made for a museum in North Dakota. Charlie, were you transported to another place, another time? I was transported to the 1988 vice presidential debates. And to paraphrase the great uh, late Lloyd Benson, I have been to North Dakota. I know North Dakota, and this is not North Dakota. <laughs> it is a condescending gloss on North Dakota by someone uh, who doesn't really understand the place. And if you believe her take on it, it's the best uh, advertisement to bring agribusiness in the state that you would want, because it looks uh, dead, lifeless. Uh, Speaking to the technique, I think five-channel video is always a difficult uh, task to attain. Very few people can do it well. Pippaliti Reist, Bruce Nauman, Bill Viola in his classic days 
So when you, you walk into a gallery, I would agree with you, David, you're put off. Much better to look at even a photo of it or a one-channel video than to give the illusion of a surround environment that doesn't exist. I found the imagery hackneyed. I found the point of view extremely narrow and condescending. Uh, if everyone, if this celebrates America, I want to be on the first boat to England. <laughs> because North Dakota is a place where you can still get bacon and eggs for breakfast for under a dollar. It has incredible national parks, beautiful wildlife. The buffalo has been restored there. It has essentially been depopulated since the plains were the plains in the area of the Plains Indians when the Americans killed off the Indians 145 years ago, say. So to me, this was all too typical of the worst uh, elements in art, and a particularly bad element in artists. No one begrudges the right of artists to go out and get commissions, research specific histories the way writers do or filmmakers do. But I think the burden of proof of knowledge on artists to show something different and not impose their own vision, both aesthetically and in terms of the theme, is always something that a good critic brings to the table. I feel Mary Lucier is lacking. Oh. Suzanne, are you going to defend your, your favorite <laughs> artist here? That's a bit of an indictment. Frankly, I mean, uh, I, I thought it was too idealizing. Not, 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 uh, you know, not reductive. I mean, what I would have liked to see added into this film would be more of a contemporary look at the agribusiness, to incorporate that as, I mean, to show the changing culture, to make it a, have a little bit more, more attention. It was a little like a pay-in. It was like, a, it was like a song. Uh, but uh, I enjoyed it. It was sort of bucolic, but in a kind of um, uh, depressing way. I mean, it was uh, that sounds obviously a contradiction. But I, I, you know, Charlie's saying it's patronizing, and North Dakota is better than that. You're saying it's slightly idealizing, and I, I'm, I'm kind of saying, well, this is maybe like five track, five channel criticism. But I'm kind of <laughs> saying, yeah, well, actually, these two images they may sound like they're diametrically opposed, but I can see them working together in, in one critique of this show because, um, on on the one hand, um, it's on the, on the one hand it's um, sort of it's sort of making an aesthetic object out of a kind of the alienness, the dare I say it, the kind of white trash sense that here's here are here are people you know here are schools closing down, here are people uh, having fun at a rodeo, here are people uh, overseeing the birth of a uh, a calf. The farmer there looks really worried. Of course, farmers are always worried. They're the world's greatest pessimists. But um, uh, the, the, on the other hand, um, it's with the music and with the, ambi the, the, the ambiance, it's kind of saying something that's, this is a gold, it's, it's, it's intimating that this is some sort of, in a, in, a, in a funny way, a kind of golden age. This is uh, the innocence of America. It's farming, it's plains, it's... Yeah, I think that's appropriate. It's, it's kind of a pastoral impulse. The depiction of rodeos was totally uh, out of line. I mean, rodeos are as hip now as NASCAR. They're not really to my taste per se, but if you turn on the internet or cable TV and look at rodeo fans and rodeo stars, it's a genre that has tremendous artistic appeal all over this country and is, you know, probably hotter than baseball in a lot of markets right now, the way NASCAR is hotter 
well, they spotted. But, so no, to, no, to no, pick, but how so, do we how so do we feel so. that she's patronizing uh, rodeo? I mean, it's sure. the whole sort of down um, emphasis of the installation that it's all dying off, and we should just drink the Kool Aid and. You know, let North Dakota oh, no, float no, no, away. I, I, don't, I, I wouldn't um, say that this is. That's depressing. a very, that's a very uh, subjective interpretation, Charlie. I mean, well, I'm a Bridget, critic. Did, did I'm entitled to be subjective. Sure, sure, that's fine. But I wonder, if Bridget. I mean, the damn objective. I, shoot me. I, I wonder if I wonder if, uh, if Bridget shares that reading of of the piece. I mean, I didn't. I, I, you know, I have to say. I mean, I, I read afterwards that you know it was supposed to be about you know, North Dakota's you know, the depopulation of North Dakota and agribusiness. And, you know, I, I didn't get any of that as I was actually watching the video. <laughs> you know, I had, you know, I started with the sort of scenes of Little House on the Prairie gone, you know, you know, emptied out and then kind of going into more contemporary images. Um, sometimes I found those images a little jarring. Sometimes, the, you know, sometimes it sort of seemed more like actors than people. But I didn't feel like it was, um, you know, and, and you know, yes, rodeos are, there's all different kinds of rodeos all over, you know, there's all different kinds of rodeos, there's all different kinds of powwows, each one of them has a different feel. And, you know, Fargo, North Dakota may be populated, but a lot of North Dakota is not. And so, you know, she wasn't really talking about, you know, Fargo as a technological center, which it is, you know, mm. base of a lot of the computer technology businesses are based in Fargo, North Dakota, but that's not what she was, <laughs> she wasn't, you know, she wasn't given that task to talk, talk about it. Well, so. even whatever task she's given, she's an artist, so presumably she's just entitled to make a work of art and not feel that she has to encapsulate a, uh, a valid point of view of North Dakota. I mean, uh, mm. uh, whoever's commissioning her and however much they're paying her, she's, she's an artist, she's making art. And um, her view of this rodeo was this, I mean, I found the whole rodeo sequence the, the one bit I really couldn't stomach, but uh, mostly because of the music. But, um, uh, but also the split screen just seemed to be a rather kind of uh, uh, trite sort of uh, surrealist technique that didn't seem to really mean anything. And uh, mm -hmm. I'd be, I'd be one, wonderful if I could hear it, that it really meant something. I, I respect Suzanne's in, in interpretation of what it meant. But um, that's, nonetheless, that's Mary Lucier happening to want to finish her piece with her, her feeling, uh, her, her use of some imagery that comes from a rodeo. I don't think it has to be the final word on rodeo. Any more than Mirandi has to be the final word on bottles. I mean, somebody, <laughs> somebody from the bottling industry could say, Mirandi on bottles is out of line. But it's, it's really, that's not, that's not what Philip art's Perst about, is it? Or Philip Burstein on nudes. The other thing is that artists find themselves competing with more popular and praised um, media. For example, you could compare this installation to the film Fargo, which has a similarly down, depressed view of reality in the Midwest. And frankly, when I see an installation like this, I say, if I've seen Fargo, why do I want to see this? It's something that's done in... They're completely different modes. I mean, I wonder what the audience think. Did you guys think it was really depressing? Because, <laughs> you know, and that well, it, there I was sort of... It wasn't depressing. I, if anything, I would <clears throat> think that maybe nostalgia is too easy for an artist to do. But it's like uh, saying... Uh, I don't know what. I've seen Caravaggio. That's dark. So uh, why... Uh, I've seen Caravaggio in Rome, so why do I need to go see the Sistine Chapel? You know, <laughs> that's also in Rome. I mean, uh, one thing I would I mean, certainly <laughs> agree with you, Charlie, is that if is that if uh, is, is that if uh, if 
Mary Lucier's video had Francis McDormand in it, I'd certainly have gone to see it a few more well, times. But no, I think I, I digress. But I, my basic argument is, I believe, having been to North Dakota, it is a fundamentally skewed, wrong version. I don't think it's even nostalgic for anything real about North Dakota as I have experienced, and that, again, is very subjective. Oh, but if we were saying we Warhol's movie Empire, would we stand up and say, hey, I've been to New York. No, there's more, that's, more happens in New York than happens in Andy Warhol's Empire. So you're saying we can't use any personal experience as critics and comes to relating to art? Of course you can use, but what, what is this? Our art is uh, as kind of documentary? We're not reviewing um, North Dakota. We're reviewing uh, Mary Lucia. But did everybody else think it was really nostalgic? I'd, that was Su that was Suzanne's term that it was nostalgic, not yeah, mine. Yeah, oh, well, yeah, yeah. Oh, right. okay. Yeah, this half thinks it's nostalgic. That half doesn't. Okay, look. Are we in the middle here? <laughs> no, no. I'm 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 with the nostalgia. So I'm going to move on also to our next two shows. Okay, this lady thought it was a bit boring. So in, the most used. Uh, Thank uh, you, Liz. In deference to this lady, we're going to move on to the next show. So we've been to see Kim Dingle's show, uh, which included one sculptural installation from 1994 called Pris. We've also been to see Philip Perlstein at Betty Cunningham. That's about as sinister a compare and contrast as you can devise. Dingle and Perlstein, sinister. Tell us why. In a good way. Yeah? Um, well, Kim is really about the id, and not just the female id, but the id in the guise of a young girl, which is herself. And she's been working this theme um, since 1992. And um, having not painted for a while, she's really come back uh, with all guns blazing and, and doing better than ever. Uh, and of course, Pearlstein, at least to my mind, is, uh, and he's an artist I've been trying to wrap my mind around ever since I was a boy. Um, it's about a certain kind of weird detachment from the model and the female figure. Kimmelman in the Times today tried to rationalize it as a justification of a certain kind of pattern painting and and his vision, but um, Pearlstein tends to mask his psychology and his psychological uh, motives uh, in his work, whereas Kim is very much motivated by her own id, by her energy. I can tell you a story about Kim. I used to have a show on WBAI called Artbreaking in the early 90s when I first met her, and she was my guest, and she proceeded to really, really blab away and talk and talk and talk. And halfway through the hour, she fell asleep, right on the table. <laughs> Only worst interview I ever had was Alex Katz, where he clammed up and I had to answer the questions for him. But I look over and Kim's going, and she later told me, I'm narcoleptic, you know? I, I go all night, I work, I paint like Picasso for a week, and then I sleep for a week. Whoa. Well. <laughs> so Bridget, was, was she awake or asleep when she, uh, when she was painting these paintings? So what... what, what, what uh, well, do, you, do you think it was a sinister contrast? How, how do you feel that these two square up together? Well, you know, it's, it's sort of technically, they're both amazing technicians. I mean, there's, you know, that Kim Dingle's paintings are, you know, luscious. The application of paint that sort of seems like she doesn't miss a beat. Um, you know, the swirls are sort of reminiscent of Cecily Brown to me. Um, you know, the idea of the oil on the vellum, you know, is very sexy. And um, and I feel like with Philip Perlstein, I mean, you look at the paintings and you think, you know, he hasn't missed a spot. There's not a line that seems misplaced in terms of, you know, there doesn't seem to be an accident anywhere. And yet, um, you know, in the case of Perlstein's paintings, I mean, you know, 
I think it's my age and, um, you know, sort of kind of coming of age in graduate school and at the height of feminist art and sort of, um, you know, seeing these paintings and thinking there's no connection to the fact that these are, you know, there's no sort of, they're so clinical to me and so interested in opticality. And um, I somehow I look at them and I think they look better photographed than they do in, in person, the in the flesh. Um, you know, Very true. and um, you know the, the the paintings are much better than the wa- watercolors. Um, the watercolors seem to me very flat, and um, and I just think like you know you're taking such a heated top. I mean, you know, we're living in an art world right now, which is overrun by porn, as far as I can see. You know, sort of using it as a me- method to make something compelling when it's not, but you can't help but look at it because it's porn, and porn is fun to look at but the you know it's sort of like you know with the fact that there's no you know I mean like in the 70s the Pearlstein may have been really shocking you know if you've got a long couple of decades of abstract painting to see something realistic you know would have you know the topic would have had a lot of draw but now you know it seemed to fall flat there wasn't a story there and I wanted a story what can I say Hmm. well um, it seems to me I, I, I share Charlie's view that this is these are really as contrastive as paintings can be, while in, in a funny way actually dealing with potentially similar topics as far as uh, narrative is concerned. I'm, I'm surprised that Bridget didn't see any story there because I think, I think with, with Perlstein, there's actually way more narrative and iconography than he's willing to admit in these very bland, deadpan titles he gives, which are entirely sort of generic, telling you what's in the pictures. I think that actually, I, I, I think it's up to the viewer to construct narratives anyway. It doesn't matter what the, the intentions were to some extent. I think there's just so much, so many objects, things, and personalities that he, he brings together, he juxtaposes in his paintings, that um, it, it's, really, um, it's really up to you. And it, it, one can con- begin to construct all kinds of uh, meanings. That HMV dog, it's fascinating with both, both uh, Polstein and Freud, their dogs are like self-portraits. If you actually look at the faces, look at the face of the HMV dog, it actually doesn't, it looks less like the actual HMV dog than it does like Philip. Um, but as to the contrast, Dingle and Perlstein, well, you know, it's almost, it's almost like Venice versus Florence. Even though the colors, even though the chroma is brighter in Perlstein than it is in Dingle, I'd say that, the ding, that Dingle is colorito and Perlstein is disegno. That, that Dingle is haptic, all about touch and texture and feel, and uh, Polstein is the absolute extreme of optic. I totally agree with Bridget that, you know, uh, they almost work better in photographic reproduction. Um, it's not that they actually do work better in photographic reproduction, it's, it, but the point I would make is that, bizarrely, he uses paint just in order to make his image. There's absolutely no love lost for the paint itself. Mm-hmm. Um, they couldn't be anything but paintings because painting is required to, to, to generate that kind of elastic opticality that, that, he's, that, that, that is what's so weird and, and fantastic about the paintings. And yet, as soon as the painting is delivered, you may as well photograph it and get rid of the painting. Whereas Dingle <laughs> is, is just... I mean, it's, what a perfect image to have little children behaving badly, making cake, and, and that's exactly what she is. She's a little child behaving badly, almost using icing and cake on those strange uh, vellum paintings. Uh, Suzanne, who, tell us. 
Uh, I, I think that uh, each of these works is enhanced by comparison with the other. We could say, uh, I think this is a, a brilliant opposition between the form, which is associated with Renaissance Florence and the color of Venice. What they share, of course, is a attitude toward women. And uh, I, and uh, Philip Rolstein, I have always felt alienated from because he, his ambivalence about women is manifest by the fact that he either doesn't show the face or the, or the woman does not look out and engage. Uh, as, far as, as far as the Pearlstein, particularly, I consider that he is in his mannerist phase, in fact. In the pictures, well, I think he and Dingle, but his particularly are very kind of clotted. They are filled with uh, trinkets, toys, textiles, they're uh, kind of a conglomeration. This is kind of a tour de force of illusionism. It, you know, you, you always, you know, you, strive, you go into a show and you always wonder now, who's buying this? You know, <laughs> and you know, who's buying this? Someone who wants a Pearlstein. And at this point, they're going to get a mannerist, late Pearlstein. So different. I mean, I encourage you, go, go upstairs sometime and see the Pearlstein they have here from 1963. A single woman painted in a very kind of buttery manner. And now here he is in his very kind of arctic, uh, uh, frigid uh, uh, kind of painting style. Uh, now, as far as Dengel, I want to say, first of all, I thought this work was horrendously overhung. I mean, I mean, there. I mean, in the Times they called it muralish. Yeah, the the works are muralish, but you know, they have, what do they have? Three inches between the works. I mean, do they have to cram so many works on the walls? I mean, if people want to buy all these works, they can show some in the back room. You know, uh, and uh, as far now, I think that her work is most interesting to me. I mean, of course, it has that luscious brushwork, it has that sensuality, but, uh, but I, stepping back from the immediate work, the context, I think it's interesting that she is uh, essentially exploring the bad girl. This is, this is a, this is a regendering of women as um, uh, frenetic, as aggressive, as messy, these little little cooks are not going to grow up to be Alice Waters. They're going to grow up to be Laura Croft. You know, they're they're going to be they're going to trade in their wooden spoons for laser guns. I mean, uh, so they're not, they're not going to sit for Philip Pelstein. Yeah, no, they're definitely no. So we have two. So we have two interesting attitudes toward women, which might you know be about our current moment. Here's a woman painting assertive little girls who are who are you know full of self possession and not not afraid to make a mess in their activity and their creativity right. and here we have a older gentleman who is still can't figure out whether he finds these women attractive or fearsome Pelstein does paint men as well doesn't he I mean do, do we, is there a Bridget do you, there are none in this show no, but uh, uh, we get quite hairy men occasionally do you think there's a fundamental is he more at ease with, with men than women I'm not sure that he is really I think I'm not even sure. Well, he's, uh, he's very associated with picturing women. He, yes, well, he, he the old man. Yes. But yeah, 
Very, I mean, uh, well, I mean that, that's what makes them marketable, right? You can have something that kind of looks like, if you're repressed enough, you can think of it as a girly picture. But, uh, but if you really have any sense of empathy, you can really see that he doesn't, uh, that this is, this is a very kind of uh, cool, uh, it's a su kind of suffocating conglomeration of stuff, and then a very cool uh, arctic air. I, you know, when I, when I reviewed John Curran, I, 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 I came to the conclusion, I said that uh, his dishware is much more sexy than his, his figures. <laughs> and... Um, I, I sometimes feel the same about Perlstein, actually, that um, uh, he has women who are basically still life objects, and then he has this extraordinary Americana. I, I'd rather wish he'd say, send the models home and just give us the toys and the kites and the, the model boats. Uh, we might get more from him. What, I've spent a lifetime trying to understand Perlstein and, and never really caring for his work and admiring the fact that he's showing in a beautiful space, Betty Gunningham. He is in his 80s. He continues to work. He's always been, at least on the surface, an amiable, gentle soul. In my own piece, I tried to kind of rationalize his own vision of things. Uh, I think it is true as you get older that the line between what is alive and what are objects tends to blur as you, uh, you know, begin to think uh, that you're going to become an object yourself pretty soon. But in this sense, Pearlstein has always been a very old soul, really, when he was younger. And I tried to interpret this because um, I think it is important and, and fascinating for the viewer to go into the artist's imagination insofar as you yourself can visualize it uh, as a kind of white noise or background, the models in his piece, almost like a constant in an algebraic equation, out of which all the other varieties, whether they're color, a sense of surrealist uh, juxtaposition of objects, or the actual objects themselves, come alive. So it's an inversion. As the models become deader and more and more lifeless, as they have always been, in my view, in Perlstein's work, the objects take on a certain amount of life. And I felt after 45 years of looking at his work that I could finally, for the first time, make a case for them from a perverse point of view. Yeah, uh, Bridget, it, it strikes me that Kim Dingle, although she's the more physical, tactile, extremely physical, extremely tactile, the work has, has great kind of flatness in, as, as, uh, from a pictorial point of view. Perlstein, mm -hmm. who's as flat as a pancake as far as the actual surface is concerned, has these amazingly weird kind of perspectives and is very interested in, in volume and, and, how, and composition and, and how, how things fit in space. And he's so obsessed about perceptual uh, truth uh, as opposed to using as opposed to perspectival approximation of truth that you know, we, we have all those funny things going on. We have things that look completely weird and ridiculous, but at the same time you think, wow, looks weird precisely because actually that's real. I, I, you know, one thing about Kim Dingle that the artists might find notable, she has found the perfect synthesis of subject matter and factual because by painting on vellum, it's unlike canvas. You don't. There's no texture there. There's no soak. There's no. Resistance. Yeah. There's no. So so it's all kind of like uh, it's like putting butter on wax paper. You know, it's it's all going to slide around, and it's a, it's a kind of uh, you know kind of frosting the paintings, 
rather than rather than having a kind of paint pigment that soaks in, and it kind of corresponds to the kind of you might say visual slickness of the works. I mean, I think this this work would have had much more impact, as I said, if 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 the gallery gave the viewers a little airspace. Uh-huh. You know, but, but uh, thank you. But uh, let's get uh, back to the uh, flatness and the and the sense of depth. Did, uh, did that resonate with you, Bridget? Does that seem an issue? Well, I mean, I I, mean, I, I believe that the Dingle paintings are studies for a, a mural. So you know, in in a sense, I didn't really overly think overthink the <coughs> perspective issue there. And I I do think I think it's a little complicated to start talking about, despite the fact that. Pearlstein's paintings look realistic. To talk about them is realism, you know, and um, and that's what I was sort of getting at with the story. I think that um, you know his attention to detail is hyper real, if anything, you know that, yeah. or that you know, for me when I look at the bodies, I mean they look like the bodies in the bodies. Uh, they they don't actually. I mean you know but the bodies the exhibition where the the the, the bodies oh, yes. are actually f- skinned flayed. And plastinated, you know, his bodies look like mannequins to me. I mean, you know, very sophisticated type of mannequin. Um, so it doesn't really seem to me, you know, I mean, I read Michael Kimmelman's review today, and I love his writing, but I didn't agree with his, you know, uh-huh. take on them as being about realism, despite the fact that obviously at the time when he started to paint them, they seem very, very much about realism. But I think it is really important to, you know, that he came out of this abstract expressionism. He came out of the era of Clement Greenberg. It's a time when people were really interested in thinking about the relationship between two dimensions and three dimensions on the canvas, that the canvas was two-dimensional, not three-dimensional, that it wasn't the world, you know, wasn't a world of realism. And even though he took on the figure, I think to think of him as sort of interested in three dimensions. But I really think we should talk about Kim Dingle's sculpture. Because when we start to talk about three dimensions, I think she's an amazing sculpture. You know, um, you know the paintings themselves, as impressed as I was with the technique, I uh, wasn't as impressed with the content and didn't really necessarily have that sense of the perfect marriage. But when I, you know, when I look at those dolls in the crib and I, I have this sort of thing, like she's just, she's caught that moment like when, I used, when my daughter was that age and I think, my daughter is a monster. She's doing this to terrorize me. You know, and of course she's just being a child, and um, you know, and that, that you know that element of you know the egg gone wild or whatever is so perfectly expressed there. You know, where the paintings are very facile. Um, you know, it's easy. You know, these these are girls drinking at a bar. You know, they're babies drinking at a bar in pretty white dresses. It's a, it's disturbing, but well, she was always primarily a sculptor, of course. So yeah. this is really spreading her wings a bit. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that you know she she took a break from painting to open this cafe, which uh, uh, Fatty's in her in her studio, which apparently is a roaring success. It's one of the great sort of culinary hotspots of, of of LA. And uh, as a reminder of the fact that I mean she's she's an artist who's from the sculpture we see it comes right out of that Californian school of kind of the abject. One thinks of McCarthy and and uh, um, uh, uh, Kelly and 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 going well, back let me to clarify, she was a product of downtown LA, which is as <laughs> depressing and uh, yeah. downtrodden as Mary Lucia's North Dakota in its own way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, worse. Worse. <laughs> but she's also a product, I guess she's brought that, and she's also a product of a Californian school of art, which despite 
the general opulence of California and one's association of it with with, with sunshine and, and consumerism. It's uh, it's a school that's really passionately concerned with the abject and, and excess. And it's interesting that she and Damien Hurst in Britain, who's equally interested in the abject, should both be uh, great and successful restaurateurs. And I wonder if there's some uh, pattern or meaning in, in that. Maybe, maybe not. I feel, uh, panel, that we're at the stage where we should really begin to hear from our audience who've been very uh, uh, patient and attentive till now. So do, do please share your views succinctly on any of the three shows that we've been looking at. Thank you. Um, this is more in the nature of a question. And uh, in a way, it's uh, a devil's advocate kind of question. Um, Pearlstein has always had an approach which is a, a, a contradiction in itself in that he takes the human figure, a woman most of the time, and uh, approaches it, the, woman, the subject in a completely detached, disinterested manner, uh, deliberately cutting, beheading them to make the point that it's not a portrait, it's not about the woman, it's not as a subject. My question is, is that innately, as a position, repulsive before we even look at the painting? Is that what offends and upsets people uh, even before, that premise, yeah. even before one deals with the paint surface and all the other things which fall into place with that um, attitude? Good question. I think we should field it. Anyone would like to? The women are not only headless, they're nude. They're a non-position. Uh, they're, they're, like they're nude. They're not only headless and nude, but they have beautifully shaped bodies. Well, you know, what are we supposed to be admiring here? You well, know, that, uh, uh, I, I, Bridget wants to say something as well, but I'd like to say I don't think Philip Pelsine cares if we admire them or not. Yeah. And I think the point is actually the realism is a misnomer. Uh, mm -hmm. Irving Sandler coined the term perceptual realism, and the, the key word in that phrase is perceptual. He's interested in looking, okay? And the reason he paints women with nice shapes and doesn't care about their heads is not because he's a misogynist who wants to decapitate pretty women. It's because anybody who paints real things will tell you the primary challenge, the great transport to observation and discovery is the naked body. And if you're male and straight, you'll probably prefer to paint uh, attractive women. That's my... You. But well, you know, but it, it, if, it, if it's just if it's just about perceptual realism, why don't we see him take on cellulite? Why don't we see why don't we see uh, fat people? You know, why, why don't we see uh, you know? Can I answer that? I'm yeah. sorry. That would be distracting in the way that Lucian Freud is, mm -hmm. and it would become personalized. And he's trying to be depersonalizing and create something that happens to be an abstraction while using a human form, which is yeah. that impossible or can that be done? So, so well, Bridget. I think that's why he probably keeps returning to the subject over and over and over and over again is he can't ever get it right. You know, he keeps trying and he keeps trying and he keeps trying and he shifts a little bit and he shifts a tiny bit and then he doesn't, doesn't get it. And I think, you know, I, he probably avoids faces because faces are really, his hands are great. His faces are, faces are really hard to paint. And if you try to get any connection with the, the viewer, mm. with, the, with the eye contact, then the face takes over. Yes. It's and, hard to depersonalize And it's hard to depersonalize a painting his portraits, that way. I think, so it's going to distract from his task at hand. But I mean, I remember having a discussion with David Sally, who was very, you know, surprised that people, women, found his work 
insulting. You know, pornographic images, crotch shots, yeah, advertising, things like that. Because he wasn't thinking about that when he did it. And, and you know, I don't think Pearlstein's thinking about it either. Um, okay. it, so, you know, yeah. it's just a, your personal take. is You, you know, you can decide whether you Good. find it There's repulsive. lots of hands up. So, um, yes, pass, pass the mic in front of you. Thank you. I think the, uh, the, the figures are, are very dead and, and non-communicative and all that we've said here. And it leaves me empty and cold. And then the juxtaposition of these wonderful objects full of color and life. I think the whole thing was very kitschy. That was my reaction. Mm. Okay, great. Uh, pass the mic back to the lady here in, in white. Yeah, I was wondering why nobody commented on the objects, why he chose those objects, and what he was trying to say with those Please speak objects. into the mic. And what he was trying to say with those objects. So they weren't just yes. objects that were around the studio. Pick well, anything, but right. they have some meaning. Did you say objects or optics? Objects. 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 Like the, the, the Mickey Mouse, the Kite butterfly. And, and mm. the Mickey Mouse, whatever. Okay, uh, now pass it back a couple of rows to the gentleman in the glasses. I would like just to um, throw my five cents in here. Um, about the comment that Bridget made first, I think it's I just touched a, a very sensitive nerve in, in me when uh, when she said that Perkstein is not about uh, realism, even if he was very much about realism after the 60s, after the dominance of Greenberg and so forth. Um, I just it, it just uh, it just crossed my mind because um, his touch uh, and his images somehow remind me of Rosenquist, mm -hmm. and if I can just direct, the, direct uh, the discussion a little bit about uh, pop, not, not going all the way into pop, but the fact that mm -hmm. it's not about, about the figure, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, mm -hmm. I think it's something worth discussing. Yeah, I think there's a pop element to it. So he takes the Mickey Mouse. Advertising. It's, you know, advertising. it's sort of the it's kitsch, it's images of images. It's, you know, it's not trying to depict the real worlds per se. The way he's approaching you know, bodies. The butterflies are pretty. It's very much like where yeah. Rosenquist comes from, from the tradition of painting all this so uh, I'm going to take a few more from the audience and then... Uh, so take the mic, if you would, to the back to, to Marshall, who I see has his hand up. Desperately up. <laughs> well, I don't know if I missed this, but um, it hasn't really been mentioned that Perlstein's education was in commercial art. Mm -hmm. I mean, he went to Carnegie Tech and... So, uh, you know, I, I agree with you, David, as far as his disengagement from the figure, but, you know, he didn't really come out of sort of abstract expressionism. I mean, he came out of, he, he really came out more of a pop tradition, and what the last gentleman said, I think, was very perceptive. So it should be no surprise to anybody that, you know, he really does disengage from his subject quite a bit. Uh, and he is interested in various objects as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a classmate of Andy Warhol. I think um, when you sit in the Pearlstein show, you can't help but think of work that is more empathic or really uh, brings more, makes the blood respond a little more. I thought of Larry Rivers' double portrait of his mother, Birdie, for example, or War Alice Neal's Warhol. And you say, you know... Talent is something that God gives up very sparingly. And we can understand people, including ourselves, who basically work the same field over and over again because it's what we do. But when you see it in someone like Pearlstein, you want to respect it. He's a venerable figure, etc. But you almost have a sense of pity in terms of what else you've seen and what else is out there, particularly in the sense of the female nude or the nude in general. Uh, okay. 
Betty Cunningham, I bet you want to tell us about Mary Lucier. <laughs> <laughs> yes. First of all, you have to realize that Philip started painting. Speak into the, the mic, Blue. Am I speaking in the right? Yeah. Do you hear me? We're going to let the dealer defend her, uh, defend the. Uh... Oh, towards me. Okay. It's a free country. He did start. He did go through a phase of abstract expressionism, and he then came after Pollock, after uh, de Kooning, after everybody had declared themselves as the center of the world. He decided to go back to the classical, use the female figure, but he was taking away all expression, all narrative, and he was going to build a canvas. The heads might be cut off. He told me he did that because I asked for smaller paintings. The truth of the matter is that it's not, it, it's not about the figure. It's about figurative art post-abstraction. And everybody who's a figurative artist today owes Pearlstein a ton for what he did. He did, he was a roommate of Warhol. We all know that. He did study whatever design. But one of the things, just the other day, I ran across an interview of Pearlstein in 1981, and he said, you know, the difference you have to realize is it's like looking at Martha Graham with all her nostalgia, and it's looking at Merce Cunningham, who happened to put pillows in his dances. But it was about the movement. And he said, you can turn on television and look at a baseball game or a basketball game and not know what the meaning of it, but it's as if somebody has choreographed an absolutely beautiful abstract scene. And hold it to him that he's building a painting. And the narrative of the dead people and the live objects is only to close that. It's only to close that. He's not asking you to write information down. He's asking you to see the painting. And I just, I, I think it's a, I'm really proud to have the show. Okay. What, a, what a surprise. Okay, yeah. Uh, we, we are also discussing Mary Lucier and, uh, and Kim Dingle, so, uh, but, uh, you know, whatever you want to talk about is fine. And Sorry, enough. just two very brief comments. Um, I find, I found um, the painting dead, just lifeless, so if you are to focus on the painting, it just didn't have any life for me. Um, the video work, I found... I agree completely with you, with the side of the table. It wasn't a documentary, it was an artwork. And as an artwork, I found it very moving and very alive. Great. We've been to see Kevin Landers at Elizabeth D, a show that just opened uh, this, this week, April 6th. Well, Suzanne, um, You're the authority on earthworks. Um, lots of earth here. Lots of uh, uh, perhaps a sort of aesthetic that might bring to mind uh, uh, Richard Tuttle or people interested in ephemera. Or what, what's going on? What's going on with uh, uh, Landers? Did you find this a moving exhibition? No. <laughs> uh, uh. Right, well, now's a good start. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, I, uh, here, here's a couple of random thoughts. Um, I think the, the extremely casual manner of the installation both corresponds, uh, you know, these kind of hanging uh, like on something that look like clothespins almost, or push pin, hanging pushpins, you know, very dense, uh, uh, again, installation, co corresponds to the subject matter which is kind of throwaway uh, objects of little consequence, and the lack of 
artistry in the way they're photographed. They're kind of blunt, frontal, centered, often single objects. Uh, you just think, oh, it just doesn't, you know, well, why are we looking at this? You know, uh, if, I, if it were me, uh, I would, uh, if I were, I, w- I thought, gee, if I was his gallery, uh, I would, uh, A, edit this, and I would tell him, take a shot, like, we didn't see one, there's one, this beautiful, that's a great, essentially, he had looked down to the sidewalk, okay, there's a great, and it's chock full of kind of dirt and cigarette butts with one bright yellow juicy fruit wrapper, all right? Put the juicy fruit wrapper off-center, not dead-center, and make it a six-foot work. And then you'd have something that's kind of like an Andres Gursky, but of uh, urban detritus, and it would be kind of interesting. Andres Gursky meets color field painting done as a photograph. Well, Suzanne, you should have a show. <laughs> but 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 keeping our keeping our attention on this actual artist and what he did, um, and bearing in mind incidentally that unlike the other shows, although the Kim Dingle did have one early piece in it from '94, uh, the other shows are basically of of new work. This is uh, unusual in that it's a retrospective in in a way of his. The seventeen-year retrospective. Yes, yes. Um, uh, uh, I've lived in the East Village most of my life. I no longer live there, and this is a show about the Lower East Side. Of Manhattan and what it is to live there. The reason the work wasn't framed, which it should have been, was probably an economic one on the part of the gallery. I thought it was a big mistake to install um, the work that way. And having just lent a piece of Kevin's to a museum show in Atlanta, which was framed, when I went into the show, I thought, well, the only reason the gallery asked me to lend this piece was because it was actually framed. Uh, <laughs> it was the only one around that's, that's framed. Um, this work recalls a great love of mine from my boyhood in New York in the 60s, Gary Winogrand. I don't think he's an artist at that level, but uh, I think there is a case to be made, both from a photographic and conceptual point, of spontaneity. And it is very conceptual work because it's about his day, what he sees, what he experiences, and the universality of looking at art. I admit it may not be to everybody's taste, and you may have to have kind of an in with the artist or be familiar with his program over a period of years. There's another artist, uh, Patterson Beckwith, used to show with Colin DeLand, who's very similar. But uh, in a kind of staged Gregory Crewson world, I find him, even as weakness, very refreshing. But I am biased. I plead guilty. It's, and, a uh, it's a good bias. It's a good. Bi- it's a good bias. It's the bias we like. And I'll give it over to Bridget. Bridget, I, yes. I'm unbiased. I don't know Kevin, and I don't know. I saw his last show two years ago, and I thought it's fantastic. I thought it was. A, I thought I think it's very strong photography. I think he has a very clear vision of what he's trying to do, and in a lot of ways, he's framing his pictures as if they were grid paintings. But he's finding them in you know in different places, in unexpected places. I think his palette is phenomenal, and, and so I didn't mind the installation because I think like a frame, if a, well, how would you frame it, and not have? I mean, I think there was. A, I actually felt like there was a lot of careful thought that went into the way that the pictures were mounted next to one another, that the relationships that they drew. You know, the cool guy, for example, next to the mannequin with the you know, the glasses on and the funny juxtaposition. So I found myself kind of going on an adventure through what most of it seemed like in New York that doesn't seem to exist anymore. It seems like an art world more of the 80s than than now, Um, one that I'm 
again, old enough to be a little nostalgic for on occasion. I do my best not to be. But I, you know, I thought, you know, I, I, I love the guys that he picked. I love the portraits that he did. I wanted to know those guys. I, I you know, I love their energy. I love the respect he gave the people. You know, the boobs, I think, you know, that th that wasn't very interesting. But, you know, as a show, I, um, you know, I thought they thought it was, thought it was really strong. I felt it, it very much came out of an aesthetic that's, that's prevalent. I mean, the late mm -hmm. uh, Jason Rhodes came to mind more mm -hmm. than, say, Andrus Gursky, although I, mean, I, I could see Gursky in that kind of arrangement of Japanese uh, pharmacy stuff. But, but the kind of... Um, it was, uh, it's, it's a sort of... There's a, there's a hint of an indictment of a kind of the crassness of culture, but nothing too heavy. It was a sort of poetic um, uh, response that sort of makes you aware of... Um, uh, the, the, the tackiness of our culture, but it's it's almost kind of non-judgmental and 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 trying against the odds to find a bit of poetry in what's going on. You you mentioned Winogrand. It seemed to me that uh, Rudy Burkhardt might also be a point of reference. Uh, Burkhardt in colour. The, the the nonchalance I thought was kind of amusing and, and refreshing. I actually kind of liked those erotic uh, photographs, um, but they did seem to be in a completely different uh, register from from the rest of the work in mm -hmm. that the. Uh, uh, the, the figures were clearly participating in uh, the, act, the activity, the woman with her breast pressed against the uh, open door of a, uh, a washing machine, for instance. Yeah, well, um, what are you, what <laughs> she doing? Obviously, uh, there's some degree of collaboration between model and... Uh, no, no, uh, no, she was, she was doing her laundry and decided to take yes. off her shirt and her bra, her bra you know? It, <laughs> might, be, it, might, be, it might be a good subject for the next Philip Pelstein, but yeah. it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a degree of... Everything else was kind of um, witty and passive, and uh, the, the, the erotic... They were put on one wall together, which I think, from an installation point of view, was a mistake. It would have been more fun to scatter them and, and to, to avoid, uh, uh, you know, a, a dirty corner, as it were. <laughs> he did a piece at the Armory Show four years ago where he recreated a bodega stack of potato chips from Styrofoam. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Beautifully done. Yeah. And, you know, if you've lived in New York, you've been in enough bodegas... Uh, takes on a ships. certain aesthetic <laughs> resonance, um, but you had to have been there, I guess. Yes. Great. Let's let's actually now press on to our final show of the evening. Uh, Bridget, um, Paul Clay famously talked about taking line for a walk. Do you think Rebecca Smith has taken the grid for a walk? <laughs> I, th I think in the uh, yes, I, do. I mean I think in the most successful pieces to me were the ones that kind of eased around the corner up into the wall, you know, weren't so much trying to be sort of a sculptural painting, um, and uh, taking them for a walk. I mean, you know, I thought well, I guess you know in some ways I thought it was interesting she's engaging with the grid and the this kind of sculpture in the grid and that, you know, that you sort of think about the mapping and you think about the, you know, patterns of streets and cityscapes and outlines of buildings and things. But it really did seem to me to be about a kind of networking, you know, and when they started to move, you know, they seem more like a computer chip kind of a network as opposed to a, you know, a sort of something as substantial as a city. Uh, uh, Suzanne, uh expert on Smithson and on the environment. Uh, we have uh, cages and we have uh, glaciers. Is, is, is Rebecca Smith an honorary environment uh, earth artist? This work would have been interesting if it was done 1915. 
Uh, Julio Gonzalez uh, then did uh, Drawing in Space, uh, 20s, uh, taught Picasso that. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it didn't, uh, I just, it didn't, it didn't really move me, it didn't seem to have enough tension, it seemed to be insubstantial in every sense. Uh, Having said that, I think uh, I mean one. I mean, here's here's another sort of angle that a critic, or at least I think of. Oh, isn't it appropriate that Michael Branson, the uh, critic known to have a strong advocacy of sculpture, is uh, of course our designated hitter whenever a gallery wants an essay on a sculptor, particularly one who they have to offer some substance to. And uh, here we have Michael Branson writing an essay, but Michael Branson is writing a very substantial biography of this artist's father, David Smith. And thus, Michael Branson is very much beholden to his subject because she has to give him copyright permission for the photographs of her father's work, which he will need for his book. So we have absolutely no pretense of impartiality here. This is art world ethics. Uh, and, well, you know, we could have a debate about ethics, but I, I think we... I think <laughs> but it might but be... that isn't appropriate here. I mean... Uh, well, as you know, Suzanne, we've got five I, minutes to talk about this artist's work, and you're talking about her father and the man who wrote the essay, and, the, and, and you're, like, implying there's a conflict of interest. Well, absolutely. Well, uh, but let's look thing. at the work and not look at the essay, then. But, see, but do we ever, can we ever just look at the work? Now, isn't that one thing that critics do? They bring a context to it, whether it's an economic context or an art historical context or a stylistic context. It's yeah. an illusion to think that we can just look at the art or that the artist is making the work without being a person in the world who is speaking to other forms of sculpture and art. Well, I mean, Can I just is, say that yeah. as a critic and an art historian, an art historian would do something like that? But a critic would never. <laughs> you know, yeah. We would not refer to other We would, might refer to her relationship to other artists and to sort of situate it in a context like that. But Really? Yeah, we wouldn't exist for very long if we started writing. Mm. You know, I mean, you know, yeah, no. Mm. And, um, well, we wouldn't. You know, uh, I, we can have a debate about ethics. And, I, mean, I think I th even as a debate about morals, that there's something immoral about uh, taking this approach to this artist in this forum and, and with this time constraint yeah. here's a body of work if you've got nothing to say about the work fine let's move on and ask somebody who had had something to say about the work to do so um well for me i always write about relationships and what's uh behind them i must say it's glad for the first time ever not to be the most negative person on a panel <laughs> thank you suzanne much obliged Having said that, I'd heard about Rebecca for years, and um, we have many mutual friends. I'd never met her. I'd never seen her work. Um, well, then how come I, in your review on Artnet you speak about her limpid eyes? I saw a picture of her in the catalog, huh. uh, and it, it looked like her father David's eyes. Huh. Having uh, said that, uh, I love the work. Um, I know it's about glaciers and global warming, and I was happy, as I wrote, to learn that later on, and I think it's justifiable in that context. But I thought of, of fire escapes, and I thought of different Hebrew, Muslim, and Christian symbols as I wrote, 
And um, you really have to go to the gallery and look at this work closely, because when I walked in, I thought, oh, that's not much, and I thought of her father, et cetera. But looking at them on the wall and finding a tremendously beautiful transparency and logic to the way they were created mm -hmm. just warmed my heart. And um, it was a pleasure. I wouldn't have known about this show if it hadn't been for David in this panel. So uh, I thank you. I was just going to say, it's sort of, you know, I mean, there, obviously her work begs comparison to her father's. There's relationships there that are, I mean, you know, he really made sculptures that were a lot about, as much about line as they were about metal and three-dimensionality, you know, sort of that sort of thing. Um, what's interesting is how, um, how I don't want to say ethereal, but how weightless her work ends up being. <laughs> and um, that, you know, that there are times when she uses those flat strands of metal in a very flat way. But when she starts to twist it, or the piece kind of comes up at the top and it pops out a little bit at you, um, you know, that makes this, the, the grid thing of it, which alone would be pretty stultifying, um, you know, start to have this sort of, sort of interesting movement, which seems more like to me like the networks of a computer, you know, the computer age, a sort of random search. You might find, you know, if you were going to trace the lines of a random Google search. Um, and that, that, but that was the part that I liked about them. I certainly think these works would have been extremely interesting if you'd seen them in 1915, because there wasn't much work in 1915 addressing the issue of global warming and the demise of glaciers. I, I too, actually didn't find the, the, actual, um, the, the actual iconographic source to be necessarily that significant. But um, in, in my first uh, reading of the work, uh, which I would admit, uh, in, in the interest of full disclosure, took place in the artist's studio, but um, I, I felt that, um, I felt that um, yeah, okay, David Smith did Lines in Space, that's fine. But as, as Suzanne uh, usefully reminded us, that this is a tradition going back much further to, to Gonzalez and, and through Gonzalez, through, through Calder, an, an artist who's often, you know, who Greenberg was responsible for disparaging in relation to Smith. And I, I feel actually that, Rebecca Smith is is much closer in spirit to Alexander Calder than to, to, to her father in in the linearity of this work. It was very um, challenging work because it was uh, it, it has the flat pictorialism, uh, in, but at the same time, so much of the work has to do with uh, the shadows, the space that it generates mm -hmm. between itself and the wall. Um, I found that uh, I found there was a whimsicality and at the same time a sort of a sort of foreboding sense that one was. In inside or outside of, of some kind of cage structure. And then once I began to think in phenomenological terms in that way about the work uh, between lightness and heaviness, between uh, enclosure and freedom, that, that then thinking through the fact that they relate in some geographical kind of way to glaciers, uh, which are these great big solid lumps, but only they're not solid lumps because they're melting and this place their beauty in a kind of precarious situation, uh, very resonant. I, I didn't feel that they were a comment on, on glaciers any more than Mary Lucier was a comment really on, on North Dakota. I felt it was the other way around, that, that, that being here, being in this moment, and uh, confront, being, being aware of, 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 of the implications of, of, of our planet and, and where it's at, um, has, has influenced this artist to make poignant work that, that mattered to me. 
Great. I think we should bring in the audience on both the shows we've been looking at. Lastly, then, uh, Kevin Landers and Rebecca Smith. Uh, what surprises me that none of you mentioned um, uh, Mondrian. And to me, uh, Smith, to me, relates very much to Mondrian. That, to me, it's, it's all about Mondrian. Okay. Well, tell us, tell us how specifically Mondrian came well, to Well, about the vertical and, and horizontal. Right. I mean, her, her things are all about the vertical and the horizontal. Yeah, do, do, do remember that Van Doesberg and, and Mondrian fell out because Van, van Doesberg introduced a, a diagonal. So uh, <laughs> I, I fear the relationship between Rebecca Smith and Mondrian might go the same way. Well, but, except for that Mondrian felt... He was doing landscapes with his grids, and there is a relationship there. There is. It's a good call. Thank you. Uh, pass the mic, will you, a couple of rows back to the gentleman with his raised hand. I, I, I was just outraged that Suzanne could sit there and impugn the reputation of Michael Brenson, who I think uh, many people in the art world think has a rather impeccable reputation. Um, and, and in doing so, to without, I, I, I doubt without any really knowledge of, of what went on between the gallery or the essayist or the artist, and to, to slander the work and, and to not talk about it. Um, I, I think it was uh, not what I thought we were here to talk about. And uh, uh, I just couldn't let that go by uh, unremarked. Okay, well, thank you for doing so. Uh... And uh, we'll give Suzanne a chance to come back to it if she wants to. But uh, let's see any more comments. Oh, this question is for Suzanne. I thought it was interesting that you were so fond of the Mary Lucier and from the installation to the content and had such a negative reaction to Kevin Lander's content and installation where I see tremendous similarities between the two. And I want to know. Well, what what similarities you, do you see? Both of them about a particular environment, a certain sentimentality, or certain nostalgia, perhaps more sentimentality, I think, in the Mary Lucier, but uh, a look at a time that is past, more recently, perhaps, with the New York imagery, but uh, a sort of longer lived way of life in the North Dakota imagery. But again, a very loaded installation of. The, you liked the five-screen video or the five-channel video in the Lucia. You didn't like how crowded the Kevin Landers was. You liked this sort of sensational cowboy thing at the end of the Mary Lucia. Did not like the nudes in the Kevin Landers where I oh, see... Oh, no, I didn't mention the nudes. Oh, okay, okay. Well, then, sorry, my mistake. <laughs> so I was, just, I was just wondering where that kind of fell apart. That was my... I saw the similarity there, and I was surprised that your reaction was so different for the two. Yes. Well, um... I do think that a contextual view of art is fundamental, that we don't understand art in uh, works of art in isolation. And uh, thus, the context that I both see Mary Lussier's work in and that I can bring to it also, I, I find more complex and more resonant uh, not even the fact that it's five channels, but there's more, you might say, emotional as well as sensual, formal density to it. It has, it has more substance for me. 
Okay. Whereas uh, Lander's work, you know, it's it's an interesting commentary on the you know discarded stuff of city life, and it's it's you know, it just doesn't seem to have uh, the same multivalence and the, the and uh, allow maybe a diversity of perspectives i mean in 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 considering historical art uh, as I do to teach with, I see the works that offer the multiple perspectives that offer multiple truths that have many allusions seem to last seem to have survived seem to be more more substantial and I just find her work more more substantial in that regard. And and I feel like I should re- reply to this account of my putative slander. Uh, I am simply noting the conflicts, the ethical conflicts that go into a, a construction of an artist's work. I mean the intellectual construction of an artist's work. It's absolutely appropriate that uh, Branson should be asked to write about this woman, and particularly because he knows her father's work so well. But at the same time, when we come to a catalog essay, we want to have a sense that this that the writer is responding to the work without any uh, external pressures to like it other than what the work itself would provide. And it seems to me, since I we can um, know, uh, those of us who have written books or articles know how beholden we are to the artists and the holders of copyright of works. And therefore, when you have to go to an artist or the estate to get copyright approval, you dare not do anything that would alienate them. And that immediately confines his perspective. But on the other hand, this is a catalogue essay. It's not a critical review. So Mm. presumably if he didn't like the work much, he wouldn't take on this task. And if he did take it on... The um, gallery might say, "Well, sorry, Mr. Brenson, but we might ask somebody else to write this catalogue on this." Yes, occasion. but still, you look. But the other issue was not so much. I mean, this gentleman was accusing you of slandering Michael Brenson. Uh, I was accusing you of slighting Rebecca Smith because if you didn't, because and that was my that was my principal gripe. Anyway, let's let's uh, not end on a litigious note. Uh, let's take some more comments uh, if there are some. Um, uh, otherwise, yes, gentlemen in the front row. Yep. I must plead ignorance. I know very little about art history, it's, uh, and I like it that way. But I, 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 I have a question. Does critics, having too much prior knowledge of an, art, an artist's life, history, interfere with the judgment? That's a very, that's a, that's a very good question. That's a very profound one. Um, let's give it one minute each. Uh, Charlie, maximum. Uh, no. Or ten seconds. <laughs> no. No? I say, of course. Oh, of course. I mean, I, I I'll mean... I'll say sometimes. You... <laughs> I mean, I'll if say you, never. If you're... <laughs> I'll say always. I'll say often. If you're a critic, you can't be friends with someone whose art you don't like. Because eventually you're going to have to put out... You know, you're going to have to put out. And likewise, you can like someone's limpid eyes and then like their work. There's a continuity. There's a continuity between a person and the, per- the work they make. 
right? So, I mean, you, you, don't, you don't go into your studio and become a different person. So, so if you have an exchange with an artist, uh, if you find uh, a person offensive or deplorable or whatever, it makes it harder to like their work. Likewise, if you think they're perfectly That's charming... That's not necessarily true. <laughs> I used to work for Julian Schnabel, and I think he makes great paintings. I, you know, and I, you know, he's not always the nicest person, and he's no. not always decor, decor, decorous, decorous, decor. You know, proceed. You know, act with. He doesn't always act with decorum. That's and, true. Um, doesn't always paint with decorum. Yes. No, yes, I, 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 Troy, I think. Let's, let's end by uh, citing the person who's who's who, who who's who's. That's what, I want each of the panelists to tell me who their favorite artist is who is a lousy human being. Or perhaps we could just go away and all think about well, that question. I have to say, having um, appeared in and just seen a film called Guest of Cindy Sherman by Paul Asagawa Overacker about Cindy Sherman hmm. and what it's like to be her boyfriend, <laughs> I have to say Eric Fischel because he comes across and his wife April Gornick is sitting in the room and he's in the film, he goes, well, April, I think if you had had my career and I had had your career, I couldn't have stood it. I would have stopped painting. Yeah. And she's nodding her head. And I thought, oh, boy. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, it's because she paints uh-huh. landscapes. And landscapes haven't been very popular. And, and, you know, it's part of it. I mean, she's a very good painter. And, I, you know, and I think she's confident of that. Um, I've suddenly realized I don't dare answer, answer my own question. So I think that's probably a very good note on which to say thank you very much, panel. Thank you very much, thank audience. You. Thank you all. Thank you very much. It was funny because I was just going to answer your question. It's so rare, actually.